Welcome to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us in person for worship each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. For more information about Covenant, including discipleship and mission opportunities, visit us at www.covenantpresjackson.org. The primary activity of Jesus' ministry is teaching. More important than the miracles he performed was the gospel he proclaimed. Whether he was speaking to religious leaders, great crowds of people, or his closest friends, his teaching amazed, confounded, and provoked And yet Mark, in his account of the gospel, only gives us a few selections of his teaching. So when we encounter them, we ought to pay attention. Our passage today includes a lot of teaching. Mark has arranged this block of teaching around a theme. The main idea is that discipleship is a call to humility. That's it. That that is the sermon. Discipleship is a call to humility. If only it were as easy to live out as it is to say. Humility runs against the greatest desires of our favorite person, ourselves. To be humble is to be counter-cultural, not as a rebel, but as someone whose greatest aim isn't self-centered. As a society, we value hard work, and rightly so, but often for the wrong reason. We ought to work hard for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. But we often work hard for our own glory. And we compete against our neighbor to make more money than them, to get respect, to feel as if we have value and worth. This, of course, isn't an American problem or a 21st century problem. The disciples struggled with humility as much as we do. But what do these poor fishermen and tax collectors that lived so long ago have to be proud of? They've never ridden in a car or flown in a plane. They don't even know the basics about germs. Our children can identify the names of more animals and continents and planets than they even knew existed. Our weapons are superior Our clothes are more comfortable. Our food is better. We we can buy fruit and vegetables out of season. Our houses are more extravagant than their idea of a palace. Of course, my listing of these things is nothing more than a display of pride in myself, since I clearly value these things as if I had anything to do with them. I inherited them from the many who came before me. But pride 
isn't the result of convenience and luxury, intelligence or beauty. Pride is just as present without those things. There are plenty of prideful people who, frankly, have little to be proud about. And yet they are, because pride is a part of our fallen nature as humans. God created us to be all about him, but our fallen nature causes us to want to be all about ourselves. But Jesus calls us to a life of humble discipleship, and by his spirit, he will enable us to live such a life. Now, throughout this passage, Jesus modeled the way of humility as his own disciples displayed the counterpoint of pride. It opens with Jesus passing through Galilee without stopping. This is the last reference to Galilee until the time of his crucifixion. But it was a significant place to Jesus. He grew up there. He started his ministry there. He called his first disciples and taught great crowds there. He had plenty of friends in Galilee who would have loved to see him. But now he's just passing through, not wanting anyone to know. A prideful person would make a show of his return. But Jesus was humble and on task. He knew what he had to do. He was on his way to Jerusalem for the ultimate display of humility and suffering. He didn't have time to stop and talk to crowds or argue again with the religious leaders there. Time was short and there was too much that he still needed to teach his disciples. After all, they're the ones to carry his message to the world. The disciples ought to pay extra attention to everything that Jesus says from now on because when Jesus was transfigured before their eyes, just prior to this when they were up on the mountain, God the Father spoke from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. A divine validation that Jesus is the Messiah and a divine command to listen to him. The teaching of Jesus is not optional. We must heed it. As they passed through Galilee, Jesus said what was on his mind. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. This is the second time that Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. After the first time, you might recall, Peter quietly took Jesus aside and attempted to correct him. But Jesus rebuked him, saying that his mind was not on God, but on man. Here we see that they still have no idea what Jesus means. But now, out of pride, they're too afraid to ask. They remain silent. That's easy for us, with the benefit of hindsight, to know exactly what Jesus meant. He was truly predicting what would unfold. 
in a matter of time he will be delivered into the hands of men, which is a dreadful thing. And King David knew the perils of falling into the hands of men. When he was asked about what punishment he should receive because of the census he took, he said to the prophet, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of God, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. Upon hearing Jesus say this a second time, the disciples should have been concerned about who was going to deliver Jesus and to whom would he be handed over. But instead, they remained silent. They were not much of a comfort for Jesus. In fact, Mark suggests that the disciples were trailing behind Jesus as he walked alone toward Jerusalem. He wasn't a part of their conversation, nor did their speech have anything to do with Jesus. They were arguing over which of them was the greatest. They wanted distinction and recognition for being disciples. But the path of the Messiah is one of suffering, not privilege. Jesus spoke of surrendering his life, but the disciples argued over who among them had the best life. Now, Jesus knew what was going on, but he didn't stop them. He let them talk. But when they arrived at their destination in Capernaum, Jesus exposed their guilt and shame by asking them what they had been discussing on the way. And again, their pride kept them silent. But Jesus didn't rebuke them. Instead, he gently taught them, saying, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. This, this is a familiar saying of Jesus, but have you ever thought about how out of step it is with the world we live in? When the world says, be great, it means to impress, to win to achieve. But when God says, be great, he means for you to be a humble servant. It's not that we shouldn't be great. It's that God and Jesus have a different definition of greatness. God cares about humility and service. The best vocation that provides the opportunity to be great is that of a servant one who waits tables, which was as countercultural then as it is today. The Greek philosopher Plato asked, How can a man be happy when he has to serve somebody? Well, that was many years before the modern prophet Bob Dylan taught us that we all got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. A Christian is called to serve humbly. You don't have to be gifted or privileged to serve. In fact, you don't have to have anything at all to be great in the eyes of the Lord. You just need to serve others. Well, that's the primary way we imitate and fulfill the mission of Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve. 
And to make his point memorable, Jesus scooped up a child in his arms. The the disciples wanted to be honored, but this child sat in the lap of the Savior. And Jesus instructed his disciples to go and do likewise, to receive the lowly in the name of Jesus. In the days of Jesus, children were among the lowliest in society. They had no status. Infant mortality rates were high, and so was the demand for human labor. And such a society could not afford to be sentimental about infants and youth. And so children were auxiliary members of society. They had no power, no status, and few rights. A child was dependent, vulnerable, entirely subject to the authority of their father. They are a fitting example of the lowly. Jesus wants us to embrace the little and lowly among us, the small and powerless, the weak, the hungry, the thirsty, the lonely, and the sick. Such a person who looks out for the least of these is great in the eyes of God. Do we value true greatness? When looking to hire a leader, it's common practice to consult their references, which are often written by peers or superiors. But if we follow the teaching of Jesus and define greatness the way that he does, then we ought to consider also consulting those who have worked under their leadership, their administrators, even their janitors. How do they treat the wait staff at a restaurant? You can learn a lot about someone by observing how they treat those under their authority. If you were applying for a job and you knew that they would interview those who work for you, wouldn't you make sure to put a little extra effort in showing them honor? Well, Jesus tells us clearly what God looks for and is pleased by, what true greatness is, humble service. And so we ought to put more than just a little extra effort into the way we treat those who are of a lower status than ourselves, which will require setting aside our pride. Uh, The pride of the disciples showed itself again in the following verse. John expressed his concern that they'd seen someone casting out demons in the name of Jesus, but this person wasn't following them. And the irony is startling. You know, Jesus wants his disciples to follow him. But John's complaint of the exorcist was that he was not following us, the disciples. Now, perhaps it was doubly hurtful to their pride in that just before this passage, they tried and failed to cast out a demon. But here was someone outside their group finding success. But Jesus wasn't sympathetic to their prideful concern. Much in the same way that Moses responded in our Old Testament reading when the people of Israel complained to him that two people were prophesying in the camp even though they weren't among the 70 elders selected by Moses. John's concern and the Israelites' concern 
was one that came from pride. They wanted the prestige of being among the few whom the Spirit works through. But Jesus and Moses desired the Spirit to work through more people. In condemning this exorcist, the disciples sounded like the Pharisees, who earlier condemned Jesus, accusing him of casting demons out by the power of Satan. Jesus wisely pointed out that if the kingdom of Satan was so divided that it cast itself out, then it would ultimately fall. The fact that demons were effectively cast out in the name of Jesus was evidence that this person, though not among the company of the disciples, was on their side. Now we have the same prideful tendency to want to decide who's on the inside and who's on the outside. But Jesus is far more charitable and inclusive than we are. If a Christian tradition is bearing fruit and doing so in Jesus' name, then that's evidence that they're on our side, even if they don't worship in the same way we do or hold to the same confession of faith that we do. And we ought to be gracious with those outside of our tradition because there is only one body of Christ to which we belong. And though I personally think that Presbyterianism is the greatest expression of the Bible's teaching, I also believe that the body of Christ is made up of more than just Presbyterians. It's not that the differences don't matter. It's good to have convictions about what we believe, but we must be able to distinguish between what is essential to the Christian faith and what is not. For example, there are many Baptists that live around us, and a common question from them is, why do we baptize babies? People who love the Lord and regard the Bible as his word have come to different conclusions on the matter. One tradition is right and one is wrong as far as whether God is pleased with infant baptism, but it is a sign, the thing that it signifies is of greater importance belonging to the family of God. The issue of infant baptism, as divisive as it can be, is not essential to redeeming faith. There's nothing wrong with having denominations to allow us to worship among people we agree with on matters of conviction. But we should not question the faith of someone who disagrees over non-essentials if they're bearing fruit in the name of Jesus. Doing so is prideful. And pride is an enemy that seeks to divide the church. You see it right here with the disciples. And it hasn't gone away over time. We must be gracious and humble toward others. On the subject of the faith of others, Jesus offered a severe warning to anyone who might seek to inhibit, injure, or destroy the faith of simple and ordinary disciples, the faith of the little or lowly ones who believe in him. It would be better, Jesus said, for a great millstone to be tied around their neck. Long before the invention of home grain milling machines, 
Grain was ground by a large and heavy cylindrical-shaped millstone turned by strong donkeys. Now, Jesus said that it would be better to have one of these giant millstones tied around your neck and to be tossed into the sea than to lead a little one to sin. Why? What could possibly be worse than drowning with a millstone tied around your neck? Oh, well, there is something far worse than any death. The judgment and wrath of God. There, this is a warning to avoid the wrath of God at all costs. Too few people consider that if there is an almighty, all-powerful God, then what is the consequence for ignoring or disobeying him? Though, Though we don't like to talk about it, it's clear from this passage that Jesus believed in hell. And he implored his disciples with memorable, hyperbolic language to do whatever it takes to avoid it. He said that it would be better to remove your hand, your foot, or your eye than to be led astray by them and cast into hell. Now, it's important to note that this is not literal instruction to hack off your physical limbs for the kingdom of God. Elsewhere in the Bible, self-mutilation is condemned. Jesus didn't mean for you to literally cut off your hand any more then the Apostle Paul thought that the Galatians would be willing to tear out their eyes for him. It's hyperbolic language to get your attention. But that doesn't mean that we should soften the impact of his teaching to the point where we don't consider the warning at all. The metaphors of eyes, hands, and feet encompass all of what we view, what we do, and where we go in our pursuit of righteousness and obedience, we ought to limit what we do with our eyes, hands, and feet. Though we don't need to pluck out our eye, there are times when we ought to turn off the television. There are places where we shouldn't go, things we shouldn't do. If we want to please God, then we ought to humble ourselves enough to give up things that endanger us. Rather than being a danger to ourselves or others, we ought to be like seasoning in this world. Jesus' final instructions in this passage is for us to be salty, as salt preserves food and flavors the sacrificial offerings given to the Lord with fire. We ought to have such qualities in ourselves. Our lives are to be a living sacrifice to God, burned with the fires of purification and preserved with the salt of God's Spirit, which enables us to be at peace with one another. I imagine the disciples felt convicted after this string of teaching, and perhaps you do as well, which is a natural reaction to a clear call to obedience and threat of judgment for those who don't obey. But remember that these disciples, aside from Judas Iscariot, held fast to the teaching of Jesus, even though they didn't understand it. 
We don't understand or do these things perfectly either. But Christianity isn't about being perfect. It's about acknowledging how we fall short of God's standard and then confessing and repenting of our sin and striving toward obedience. If we earnestly pursue Jesus, then we can rest in the knowledge that we belong to the Lord, the author and perfecter of our faith. So let us imitate the humble discipleship modeled by Jesus, not so that we will belong to God, but because we belong to God. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 